But Lord, we come together in agreement. Everybody's agreeing with Pastor Scott. Lord, we come into agreement tonight in prayer. In Jesus' name and through the blood of the Lamb. And Lord, we lift up tonight's sermon unto you. We love the word and we thank you so much for your word. We praise you, Lord. The Bible says that you watch over your word to perform it. And we stand on the promise that your word will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. And Lord, we pray over this word tonight that you will come mightily upon me tonight and, and anoint me fresh and speak through me by your Holy Spirit the word of the Lord, everything that needs to be spoken. And it will go out as living seeds of truth that are sown into good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives wherever this goes around the world because through the internet it goes everywhere. Lord, let it be under a strong anointing. Let the winds of your spirit carry this everywhere it needs to go and let your mighty angels watch over the word. And Lord, we pray that your word will go out and Lord, it will be as the washing of the water of the word of God, a cleansing. Lord, that your word tonight will be um, like a fire Lord, that it will be like a hammer that breaks down every stronghold of the enemy. A sword, Lord, that penetrates and gets where it needs to go. Lord, that, this, that your Holy Spirit will water the seeds of the Word of God that are planted in many lives around the world and cause these seeds to take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. Lord, we ask you that your blessing be upon this. We take authority over the enemy because the Bible says that the birds of the air try to steal the seed. And so, Lord, we agree together corporately that we bind the enemy that would try to hinder this word in any way. We bind you in the name of Jesus. You will release it and back off right now. Lord, let your mighty angels just clear all that away. And, Lord, we thank you. Let everything be accomplished in and through this word that you will be done. Let it be like a light shining among the nations that dispel all the darkness and lies of deception of the enemy and bring truth and revelation. But we bless you and we thank you for hearing and answering these prayers right now. We believe we have received it and there's an expectation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Man, we love the word of God. Is everything good with the recordings? Everything's good. All right. We're going to move forward with the word tonight. I believe you guys are really going to enjoy this. So if you would, just follow me along as I go through this. But how many of you guys love the presence of the Lord? Of all the different sermons, and, and you know, my wife and I have been kind of known for different things. We've been known for revival. Probably my connection with different revivals, and um, we've been known for that for sure. We've been known some for healing and deliverance, especially with my wife's testimony. I think there's been a lot of people delivered things and so we kind of got a reputation about you know that aspect and, you know thank God for whatever God wants to do it's him that does it you know but the point is this I'm saying all that to say this point even though however people perceive things whatever seems to be pronounced to them this sermon tonight reflects what my heart is and what this ministry is really about though and that is the presence of the lord and that's what you know people say well revival they see you know, healing and deliverance and different things yeah that's wonderful we need all of that but really that's out of the presence of the lord and even the word of god being taught and understood there's something about an open heaven and the presence of god that brings um such revelation from the word such understanding 
How many people can say, you know, that before you came to River of Life, but then you came into this presence, and you, and all of a sudden it was like the presence of the Lord. It's not anything about a person, but you would say that you began to see and understand things about the Bible you didn't before. How many would say that's the truth? It has nothing to do with any person. It has to do with the presence of the Lord. When you're, in, you're under an open heaven, you're in his presence, there's revelation. All right. So what I'm going to deal with tonight is I'm talking about what brought revival. We've had a sustained presence of the Lord in River of Life now for a, a long time, for years. There's been, by the grace of God, and it's the work of the Lord. It's not the work of man. How many knows we couldn't heal a fly if our life depended on it? That's true. But God can heal anybody. We serve a God that can shake nations, that can move mountains, that can part the waters, and that can raise the dead. And when you realize how awesome our God is, and when you begin to have your faith in him, mountains begin to be moved. Things start being changed. Amen? But in this sermon tonight, I've been, I've been talking about revival and, and the presence of God being sustained here for some time. And I felt God speaking to me about putting together a couple sermons, a series. I don't know how long this will go. It may be long. But about what brought the presence of God, what brought revival here and sustained it. And so last week I talked about faith. This week I want to talk about the presence of the Lord. So let me take you, we're going to go together on a journey through the presence of the Lord here. And I hope that you're going to see some things you never have. And let me just pray right now as we're together. Lord, I'm asking you that you would anoint our eyes and our ears to be able to see and hear things we haven't before, those that are hearing this. Lord, that you would anoint our minds and hearts that we'll be able to comprehend. Lord, grant us understanding out of your word deeply. And Lord, we commit this time to you. I feel that this is important. All right, so I'm going to take you on a journey through the word of the Lord. Um, Genesis 3, 8. Have you ever wondered, thinking, you know, about the big picture of things? Why did God create humanity in the first place? He had angels, as many angels as he, you know, desired to create. And he has his heavenly dwelling. But I believe the simple answer is this, that God wanted a family. That God wanted people created in his image that would love him and serve him because we love him. Just like, for example, you and I would not really want an arranged marriage and we're stuck with a person that didn't really want to be married to us. Nobody would want that. And God wanted to create people in his image that would want him. And it would be a relationship, a family relationship, and so I believe that's why God did that, because angels, as wonderful as, as they are, are more in the way of servants. But God wanted people that would be a family. All right, so with that in mind, Genesis 3, 8. Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, and it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the cool of the day is the Hebrew word ruach, which means breath, wind, or the Holy Spirit. The Ruach HaKodesh is the Holy Spirit in Hebrew, Ruach. And Ruach can be wind or breath. It's interesting that Adam and Eve, 
they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, they knew exactly what that sounded like. They knew it was God. They knew that he was walking there. I believe personally that God had a continual relationship with Adam and Eve. I believe that this was something he did on a regular basis, probably daily, will come down and walk with them and spend time with them. That's what I personally believe. I've always believed that. And so when they heard the sound of the Lord, they weren't surprised. They, they didn't ask themselves, what's that noise? They knew exactly what that was because they knew the Lord. And they walked with him on a regular basis. Genesis 4.26, though, this is sad because just a chapter later, you've had all this begin to happen with Cain and Abel and, and sinner entering the world. And it says to Seth, to him also a son was born. And listen to this, and he called his name Enosh. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord because of sin entering the world and increasing there began to be more and more of a distance that God had and men began to have to call upon him and seek him because he wasn't near that's sad God created man for fellowship and he instituted this he wants his presence with us he would come down and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He spent time with them. That's why they were created. But because of the sin of men, it began to cause a disconnect to where people now no longer felt God. They no longer experienced anything to do with God. He seemed distant. So those that were righteous began to call out to him. God wants to walk with man and God wanted a family. So then God began to look for a way and he found a man by the name of Abraham and made a covenant with him. Through him created the nation of Israel and through this nation of Israel brought to the earth the revelation of the tabernacle, etc. It's important to understand that the tabernacle was a copy of heavenly things. You even read in the book of Revelation about lampstands. You read about different things that are connected to the, to the tabernacle. Moses was given revelation about things that are in heaven that now he replicated on the earth. But look at God's heart. Why did God even do this? Look at Exodus 25 verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary. God told Moses, you have them make a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. God initiated that. Is anybody seeing the heart of God here? God wanted a family. He wanted to be able to walk with them and talk with them. Sin came in. So then he creates this tabernacle. He had to set things in place because he's so holy. Things had to be a certain way. But yet he still told Moses, you make sure and make a dwelling place for me because I long to dwell among my people. <clears throat> in Exodus 24 verse 11 just a chapter before this is really interesting if y'all can look this way for a minute because there's gonna be some things tonight I talk about maybe you've you probably haven't read in a while or maybe some of you have never heard but when God brought Israel through the Red Sea they were baptized into Moses you can read this in 1st Corinthians 10 they were baptized through the cloud that's a picture and type of the baptism of the Holy Spirit they came out of the um, the Passover time that was under the blood so God was getting them ready for their Sinai experience. They get there. God comes down on the top of the mountain. The place is shaking. There's a smoke and fire on the mountain. 
God, it sounded like a loud shofar. God came down on that mountain in front of that nation. I don't have time to belabor this point, but I want you to see this. Moses told the people, wash yourselves, wash your garments. The Lord's coming down to meet with you. And then it was interesting because if you read this, Moses had several young men go out and gather things to make an altar, but he slaughtered several animals and there was blood there. And he took the blood in like a big basin and he was sprinkling it over the people like this. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant. And so Moses, after doing this, he sprinkles the blood on the people, him and Joshua and 70 of the elders, they begin to go up that mountain toward the Lord. Now, granted that before this, they had washed in water and Moses had sprinkled the blood on them. So they had blood stained on their garments and they're now going up. What's the pattern? And I'll get into it here in a moment. What is the pattern to coming into the glory of the Lord? The blood. Remember this. And so they had that blood sprinkled on them. And look at Exodus 24, 11. These are the leaders of Israel. Moses and Joshua and the other leaders, they were there going up this mountain together. And look at this. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. Look at this. They saw God and they ate and drank. I believe that they saw a pre-incarnate Christ on a throne. And there was, if you read the story, there was blue like sapphire around his feet. But they saw the Lord. I'm trying to, to make a point here that God is not trying to to keep himself distant from man the problem is sin he's trying to have a relationship with man he's trying to 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 bring a connection all right so god initiated the building of the tabernacle that he might dwell among them god had to create a priesthood so he took aaron aaron had four sons nadab abihu ithamar and eliezer nadab and abihu died offering strange fire so that leads two two of them now began to procreate down the bloodline. Watch this. In the days of Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli was the high priest in Israel. He was the descendant of Ithamar. And the tabernacle was in a city called Shiloh. And everything, as far as the tabernacle went, was the way God intended it to be. I'm not saying the priesthood because they were corrupt, but the tabernacle was the way that God created it to be. And you'll see what I mean here in a moment because the ark gets disconnected here in a minute. But anyway, during this time, you remember the story? Hannah was, was crying out to God to get pregnant. Eli blessed her. She goes home and gets pregnant. She says, if the Lord, she made a vow, if God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. She brings little Samuel to Eli and gives him into the work of the Lord. Now, there was a time I didn't know this, but Samuel actually did have some Levitical blood. And so Samuel, now as a little boy, begins to serve under Eli. And Eli teaches him the ways of the Lord. And as he began to learn the ways of the Lord, he himself began to realize that Eli's sons were evil, wicked men. They were having sex with women there at the tabernacle. They, uh, it would take a while to try to explain things, but there were certain parts of the animal that first were God's 
And then there were certain parts that belonged to the priest and certain things that would be to the person that brought it if it was a peace offering. But they were going in having zero concern about what God wanted, what the word said. They were just going in and picking out whatever they wanted under themselves. They were worthless, the Bible says. And Eli didn't deal with them the way he should have and been firm with them. So in the days of Eli, little Samuel began to have encounters with God. The Bible says, if you'll read this, it's really interesting. First Samuel chapter 3, Samuel would go in there and he would minister before the Lord burning the incense, but he would lay down by the ark and he would just be there in God's presence. And he began to have encounters with the Lord. The Lord gave him prophetic words. And the Bible says, even beyond that, that the Lord continued to appear to Samuel in Shiloh at this tabernacle. Do you see how God created a place called the tabernacle where his presence was and, and Samuel was brought in and now God could meet with Samuel. He could be, Samuel could be in God's presence. They could have fellowship. And Samuel got a prophetic word that God said, I'm going to judge Eli and his sons because Eli wouldn't deal with them. Even though Eli was a righteous man, he would not deal with them. And so the Philistines came in and the Philistines stole the ark. This would not have happened if there wasn't sin in the camp. But Israel lost that presence. They lost that glory because of the sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory. See, sin has been what has caused the presence of God to have to back off. And that's the reason why I'm passionate about preaching in a way that leads people to repentance and leads people to confess and turn from sin and to get washed in the blood of the Lamb and, and to consecrate our lives because that is what brings the glory. And when people are living in unrepentant sin, and they're just hearing messages that they're fine like they are. God loves them like they are. Everything's okay as it is. And they're never repenting. The glory of God. God loves people, but the glory will be distant. So the Philistines come in and they steal the ark. To the heathen, this thing just looks like a pretty box. And it's got some angels on top of it. They're thinking, man, this thing's neat. So they, go, they, they look at it like this, just like you plunder any other nation and you take their gods. They felt like they subdued Israel to a degree and now they just took one of their gods, okay? So they don't think anything of it. They don't realize that they are now messing with God Almighty and his presence. So they take the ark and they put it in the temple of Dagon, which is like a fish god. So picture like a what would look like a human being with a fish head this is Dagon okay this is the God they worship and they had priests that would come in and pray to him etc so they put the box there the ark in front of Dagon well they come in and Dagon has fallen down on his face and his head broke off his fish head broke off his hands broke off and they realized there might be something a little more to this box than what we realized and what we bargained for. And there were five major cities among the Philistines 
and they began to move this ark from place to place and here's what happened when the glory of the Lord the ark came in among the heathen like that God began to cause there to be painful tumors that they were getting um, I've read some some teaching out outside of the scripture explaining better of what was probably going on that they were actually most likely having an infestation of mice how many knows that's miserable they were also probably having painful bleeding hemorrhoids how many knows that's not something you want and of course those tumors and so they 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 realized because the ark this golden box to them is in this city and now all this is happening so they move it to another city and it breaks out again they move it to another city it breaks out again so finally through their soothsayers and their little witches and people they start figuring out that we we have offended the God of Israel and we need to make amends and they don't know what to do and so they don't how many knows they've never read the Torah they have no idea so they take the, the golden box right and they put it on a cart and they they want to apologize and so I mean they're they're sincere about this because when, you, when you've got an infestation of mice and bleeding hemorrhoids and tumors I mean they're sincere about their apologies so they make these golden mice and tumors and they make five of each to represent the five major cities and they put it on the ark I mean I'm sorry on the cart with the ark and they figure we're gonna make these um, these golden mice and tumors and and we're apologizing to the God of Israel that he will forgive us and take away these problems that we've been having and we're gonna give back his box okay that's the way they're viewing it and so they don't know how the ark is to be transported so they put it on a wooden cart and they get two. because here's what they were thinking if this ark is supposed to go back to Israel we're gonna give a little test here so they get two cows that had recently had calves that they're supposed to be feeding their calves nursing their calves and how many knows that nature those those mama cows are are yearning to be with their calf and take care of them it's just a natural instinct right and so they put these two um, mama cows in the front and they they hitch the cart and they figure well if the cows do what nature dictates and they try to go find their baby calves and they come back into the Philistine camp with the box then maybe this maybe we need to hang on to this but if it goes against nature and those mama cows go right into the camp of Israel then it's a sign that that's that needs to be returned and that's exactly what the the mama cows did they took the the cart and they walked right into Israel with it against nature how many of you guys know when you're carrying the glory of the Lord that man there is something about the presence something about the anointing that there is a drive in all of us where we would say like the Apostle Paul woe is me if I don't preach the gospel I mean it goes against nature it goes against the 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 human uh, nature the the sinful nature the uh, the selfishness all that when the presence of God is there there's something that will drive us 
to be used of the Lord in a powerful way. Anyway, when the ark was stolen, Eli fell and broke his neck. He died. His sons were killed. And basically, that bloodline of Ithamar was wiped out. Up until this point now, the tabernacle had been in Shiloh. The ark had been lost, though. And so the ark wanders into a city, Beth Shemesh, and um, they tried to look in the ark. And so God killed a lot of them, and they were scared of the ark. And so what they did was they took the ark, and they moved it to a city, Kiriath-Jerim, to the house of Abinadab, and they appointed a man by the name of Eleazar. They appointed him to look after the ark. Now here's the concerning thing. I want you to follow me because I'm taking you on a journey of how you can see that Satan has fought the priesthood. He's fought the presence of God. He's done everything he could to try to get people into sin so that God's presence would be disconnected. He's done everything he could do to try to hinder the presence of God from being among God's people. How many would agree with that? You look across Christianity even today. This is an ancient battleground where the devil is trying to keep in any way that he can God's presence disconnected from God's people. But how many knows if we'll go after God, God wants his presence among us. And so anyway, they take the ark and they have to put it into a man's house. We don't read a lot about what happened, but my goodness, you know as well as I do that that had to be an awesome thing. That now this guy has got the ark in his house. And there was a, most likely I'm sure Eliezer was a priest. And just based on his name, he was probably a descendant of Eliezer, Aaron's son. But here's the concerning thing. The ark remained in that house for around a hundred years. Yet, follow me, now that Eli dies, his sons die, that bloodline Ithamar died off. So now there's only one priestly bloodline alive, the descendants of Eliezer. We don't read about this in the Bible, but they, they had to have done this. They went to Shiloh and they took down the tabernacle and moved it probably to where they lived, to a city named Nob. And they begin to minister unto the Lord there. But here's the thing I don't understand. Why didn't they go get the ark? Because they ministered there before the Lord all these years without the ark. And what's interesting to me and grieves me is how many places today will go through religious ritual after religious ritual, week after week, week after week, no presence of God, yet nobody ever asks the question, why is God's presence not here among us? Why is God not healing the sick? Why is God not delivering people? Why are people not getting saved? Why are lives not being transformed? Why is the presence of God not among us? Nobody's asking that question. Just like these priests in Nob. What in the world are they thinking? They have to know the word and they have to know that that ark is supposed to be in the Holy of Holies, but it's not there. I 
under Eli, even though the priesthood was not where it needed to be. That ark was in the tabernacle, and you find that Samuel had an encounter with God. Samuel's mom had an encounter with God. But in Nob, you don't read about anything happening of significance. You can have religion without the presence of God, but don't expect anybody to be changed. But David, David loved God's presence so much. It was interesting to see that the tabernacle went from Shiloh probably to Nob and that it ended up having a final resting place we read about in 1 Chronicles 16, 39-40 at a high place. And that's the last we read about the tabernacle. But Saul, in his pursuit of David, you remember how King Saul became an evil man and, and began to chase David and wanted to kill David? Well, one of the places that David went was the city of Nob, and he found the priests there. And he was, they were weary in battle. And he was talking to the priests there and said, do you have any food for us? And they said, we don't have anything except the, the bread of presence from the table of showbread. It's really made for the priest. We'll give it to you and your men to eat. I mean, knows when you're weary from battle, God will give us bread from heaven. There's something about that communion table that is so powerful, it gives strength to the weary. It gives strength in, in times of battle. And it is also a table in the presence of our enemies. And so David and his men ate of that consecrated bread. And the priest at Nob had, had somehow found the Goliath sword. And hung on to it and gave it to David. Well, Saul brought his men down there to the priest at Nob. And he went on a rampage because they fed him. And he kills all the priests, has them killed. But there was a man by the name of Abiathar that escaped. And God supernaturally kept alive the priesthood. Or Saul would have killed them all together that day. Understand, this is the last remaining bloodline from Aaron. And David loved God's presence so much. He finally comes to the throne. He's anointed, obviously, under Samuel on the field, but he wandered in caves maybe up to 16 years, some people believe. But he ends up in Hebron. He takes the throne there for a couple years. He ends up in Israel. And now his great battle, he's got to take the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. God gives him a supernatural victory. David now establishes his throne in the city of God, Jerusalem. You know, what's interesting is that up until this point, God had never made it really clear where he was going to place his name and his presence. Not really. The tabernacle moved around. But when David took Jerusalem, God made a covenant with David. And God clearly states in the word that he was going to place his name and his presence in Jerusalem and you, did you know to this day that has never been revoked that's why there's such a satanic warfare against the city of Jerusalem but David loved God's presence and, and he wanted that ark to come he wanted the presence of the Lord to be near him there's a lot of people out there that know Christ. They're born again. But there's a remnant out there that are desperately hungry for his presence. 
not just to know about him but to really know him not just to pray to someone that seems distant they they want god's presence in their life they're hungry for more and david was that way and david goes out of his way now he finally had gotten to a place to where his kingdom was established he had his military in place you know he had secured his rulership and he says to the leaders he says i want the ark here because they've got to go along with him in this and so he gets everybody in agreement and they go to get the ark but here's the problem david as much as he loved the lord with all of his heart he was not of the priestly line and the bible was clear that the priest were to carry the ark and so david didn't look into the bible about how do you get the presence of god i'm going somewhere with this tonight you guys are about to see david didn't inquire how do you biblically get into the presence of god how do you get the presence how do you move the ark he didn't do that i guess i'm just guessing just like maybe you would with me tonight that that maybe he had heard the story of the philistines and he heard about the the wooden cart because david did the same thing he goes and gets a wooden cart and he puts the ark on it and he starts to carry it into the city of Jerusalem. The problem is when the ox cart began to fall and a man named Uzzah touched it to try to steady it, he was struck dead. And David got afraid that day. So maybe it's not meant to be. He may have felt like he looked foolish in the eyes of other people because, you know, it wasn't working out. He felt scared of God and, and he felt upset about the situation because his intentions were good. But listen there's a way to go about things guys and David went home that day and was probably really upset but they put the ark again in somebody's house Obed-Edom and when David heard I think it was there about three months if I remember the story right David heard how God began to bless the house of Obed-Edom and David once again began to get stirred up in him I want his presence here where the presence of God is, there's such a blessing. And David won that presence. So he, he begins to inquire, how are we going to move this? And he, he looks into the word. He probably talks to the priest and realizes, I did it wrong. I tried to do it the way the Philistines did it. The heathen don't know how to handle God's presence. And so he realized this is supposed to be on the shoulders of the priest. And so he works now in conjunction with the priest. They go and get the ark. They're carrying it. I believe it was every something like six steps they took. He would kill a sacrifice. Uh, they had the praisers and the worshipers out there. David was dancing. And they bring the ark of God into the city of David, Jerusalem. And, God, and David pitched a tent for it. And he began to assign praisers and worshipers and prayer warriors to minister before it and they prayed they worshiped they sought god it's interesting that under during the time of saul you would have never heard about something like that saul didn't care about prayer and worship and as a matter of fact he killed the priest but david was the one whose spiritual authority and his spiritual warfare drove the enemy back and brought victory and peace to God's people and it was in a time of worship and prayer 
when the presence of God was brought in. Are y'all seeing a connection here? So David tells Solomon to build a, t a, t a temple for the ark because he couldn't do it. God told him not to. So David gives him, I mean, if you look into how much it was, millions of dollars worth of stuff. Solomon does what his father told him. He builds a glorious temple. And now the ark of God. I'm taking you on a journey about the ark here, the presence. Now the ark of God was in something that was stationary. Before it was in the tabernacle, the tabernacle could move. It was disconnected from the tabernacle for around 100 years, which is ridiculous, but it was. That goes to show the spiritual condition of the people at the time. But anyway, now it's in the temple. And the, this is what happened. Solomon slaughtered all these animals and dedicated the temple and prayed. And the Bible says that the glory of the Lord came into that temple. And it was so strong that the priest could not stand to minister because the glory of God had invaded. David made a way for the presence of God to come back like that among God's people. I'll tell you something that's interesting is that I've said this many times, but you know, we, we call them the sacrifices in the Bible. The sacrifices, the sin sacrifice, the, the peace sacrifices, etc. The word in Hebrew is korbanot. And it, the korban, it comes from a root word which means to draw near. Really, sacrifices is not the absolute best English translation. Because when we say sacrifice, it makes, it gives some kind of a connotation to it of, of having to do something you don't want to do. Really, the Hebrew word for sacrifices really comes from a root word to draw near. Here's what God's heart was in the sacrificial system under Aaron. That people could draw near to him. He made a way. Are y'all hearing me? Think about what I've talked about with Adam and Eve. Think about what I've talked about at Sinai. And how God wants a relationship. And he was making a way. He's so holy. There can't be any sin coming in his presence. He had to make a way for things. But he made a way for his presence to dwell among men. And for people to be able to draw near to his presence again. But once again, we see sin is the problem. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm almost there. Ezekiel 8, 5. Ezekiel was of the Levitical family, a priestly blood. But he was also a prophet. And he lived in the days of the Babylonian exile during that time. I want you to see something God showed Ezekiel in 8, verse 5. Then the Lord said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes north or now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north and behold to the north of the altar gate. This is the bronze altar in the outer court. There was an idol of jealousy at the entrance. How in the world did the priest get so corrupt again that next to the bronze altar where people brought their sacrifices unto God, there's now a big idol there. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here. Where? Not just anywhere, 
in God's house. So that I would be far from my sanctuary. Did anybody catch that? See, this was once again sin that was putting a disconnect between man and God again. But yet you will see even greater abominations because Ezekiel was still in the outer court. So then verse 7, he brought me to the entrance now of the court. This is the holy place. And when I looked, I saw that there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall and behold an entrance. He said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations that they're committing in there. So I entered, this is the holy place. And behold, every form of creeping thing, beast, detestable things, with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved into the walls all around. Standing in front of them were the 70 elders of the house of Israel with um, Jehaz and Messiah, how do you say that? And they had, standing among them, each of them had a censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. So they were burning incense not only to God but to these idols right in the house of God and if you go on to read and for the sake of time I don't have time to do it right now but if you read Ezekiel 10 and 11 here's what happened God began to remove his glory God was in the holy of holies everybody look this way for a minute and follow me because I believe this broke God's heart that day God was dwelling in the holy of holies like a cloud and Ezekiel saw him and the Bible says Ezekiel watched, this is Ezekiel 10 to 11, as the glory of God lifted up from the ark area and he moved toward the outer court and he stopped and he hovered. I believe God was waiting for somebody to say, don't go. But nobody did. And so he began to move further from the, tab from the temple. And he hovered again. He was waiting for some priest, somebody to discern and say, God... Don't leave. But nobody did. And his presence was removed. And next thing you know, Nebuchadnezzar was going to come in and take, him, take down the, um, the temple and destroy it and exile the people. See, to this day, it's understood, even among the Jewish people to this day, that when what is called the Shekinah, the, the glory of the Lord, his presence is among his people, that there's a level of protection. There's a level of prosperity and health. But when that presence is gone, they're vulnerable to a degree. Y'all hear what I'm saying? So I took you on a journey about the ark tonight. And I want to now get to something. I'm only going to dwell on it for about maybe 10, 15 minutes, but I want y'all to hear me. This is really what I wanted to get to. Did you know that to this day we can go to a lot of different churches around ministries whatever they're having services all around the world and they'll have some kind of a, a a pattern in their service maybe they do three songs and then they'll do this then they'll do that and then they'll do this and pretty much every week they do the same thing but have you ever thought about this for a minute and this is cross denominationally this is cross this is international i'm talking about everybody did you know that nine times out of ten, if you were to ask people, show me scripture and verse, show me why 
are you doing this pattern in your church service? That they'll say something like, well, that's just the way we've always done it. Where this began with me was years ago, I began to seek the Lord in prayer. And when I first started having a prayer life, it was difficult. It was hard to pray. And I knew that I didn't know how. And I needed to understand how to pray. I needed to understand how to get in God's presence. And so I began to seek the Lord about it, and God began to really teach me about the tabernacle. So that began something in my personal journey that carried over into the ministry. And when God laid on my heart to start River of Life, I really felt in my spirit that I did not want to just do what everybody else was doing. And so, I didn't want to just go with any type of religious ritual or just go through some kind of pattern just because everybody else did it this way. I wanted to be able to come into God's presence. And just as I had been able to do in my personal prayer life, I wanted now for it to be a corporate thing. And so, God began to lay on my heart to... to you know, have a little bit different uh, pattern in our services than maybe traditional churches do. And so I'm going to kind of go through that briefly. But how many knows you're going to hear me say this a lot? How many of you guys knows that, that you, uh, you got to be willing to be different? I mean, if we're going to do the same thing everybody else is doing, we're going to see the same results everybody else is seeing. Now, somebody's got to be willing to say, okay, I'm going to be different and be willing to put up with the persecution that goes along with that. But I believe this, if everybody can, if you get anything out of this service tonight, I want you to really get this. I believe that God gave something that was heavenly down to Moses through revelation and it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this refers to the tabernacle. And I believe that the tabernacle is a pattern, not a religious ritual, but it is a pattern that God has given us to help us understand how to come into his presence. So all of a sudden now, if people have an attitude that the presence of God is of utmost importance. I mean, I'm willing to have the presence of God even if I'm persecuted for it. I'm willing to have the presence of God even if I'm persecuted for being different. If the presence is that important to you, then you're willing to look into it a little bit. How do I get the presence in my life? And... I believe that there's a pattern I'm going to show you. In John 1.14, New Testament, it says, Jesus is the word become flesh, and he dwelt among us. That word dwelt as tabernacle among us. We saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the walking, living tabernacle of God, so to speak. So let me just give you a couple quick things about the tabernacle. I mean, I can do a whole series I have. So if anybody wants to go deeper, you can look on our website and, and look into this. But Priesthood of the Believer, I did the series on that years ago. Anyway, here's some things about the tabernacle. Number one, there was one way in the gate. And the gate had four different colors representing the four Gospels. Here's the important thing about that. We have to be willing to preach the pure Gospel. No compromise. 
It doesn't matter. You tell it like it is. Some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it. But you preach it the way it is. The gospel. You're not going to try to accommodate people. You're not going to try to pick and choose how you're going to say it. You just preach the gospel. If people are not willing to do that, forget about the presence of God. Forget it. But if people are willing to really preach the gospel and take a stand for it, God says, okay, this is a place where I can put my presence. So here's the, the couple things I want to show you. Number one, is God began to put on my heart that we were going to open up with communion. And it's interesting because when you come into the tabernacle of Moses or the temple, when you come in, what's the first thing you see? The bronze altar. The bronze altar, it represents the cross. It represents Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. What's interesting about this, if everybody can catch this, is that there was the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. But watch this. In all three places, you had the bronze altar in the outer court that was a cubit and a half high. Then in the holy place, you had the table of showbread where the wine and the bread was that represented communion. And the top of that table was a cubit and a half high. And then in the holy of holies, you had the Ark of the Covenant where the mercy seat was. And the mercy seat was where the priest would sprinkle the blood on it and it was a cubit and a half high. What God is trying to say to us is, if you want to get into my presence, it's through the blood. There's a trail of blood. The blood begins in the outer court and goes all the way through to the mercy seat, into the glory of the Lord. That's why Moses, when he sprinkled the blood on those elders of Israel, and they went up and they saw God and they lived and they ate and drank, it was because they had blood sprinkled on them. It reminds me of the book of Hebrews. Let us be able to come boldly or confidently into the throne of grace, but it's through the blood. And so God began to lay on my heart that we needed to have a time where corporately we would humble ourselves before him and we would reverence the blood of Jesus. And we would take a time where we made sure we forgive people. We make sure we confess any sin that we need to. And I give people a chance to examine themselves. And, and, and we, we come together collectively reverencing the body and the blood. And as we take communion, we're collectively coming under the blood of the Lamb. And now the criteria is met for us to be able to come confidently or boldly into the throne of grace. And, and find help in time of need through the blood and in that outer court was the laver the bronze laver where there was water and the priest had to wash their hands and feet this is this represents us examining ourselves we take time before how many people I, I, i'm not saying this critically now i'm just being honest but how many people just think that they can just come in off the street and they've they've they got all kinds of junk on them from the week and they think they can just go right into god's presence i'm not saying god isn't dwelling in places but listen if you want to go deep into his glory you need to take time to examine yourself and get some stuff washed off of you and get under the blood and that labor is a chance that we examine ourselves and in the works of our hands are washed our daily walk is washed we confess things we need to and we come together under the blood 
And so now you move, because of the blood, you move from the outer court into the holy place. And what do you see? The table of showbread, that's communion, but to the left, the menorah. And here at the onset of services, we're saying, Lord, Holy Spirit, come move in power and do what you want to do. You know how many places man wants to be in control? Total control. People are uncomfortable letting God have control of his own house, mind you. But trusting the Holy Spirit to come and to dictate the course of a service. We may have a pattern that we're going through, but the Holy Spirit is free to move at any time, any way he wants to. Worship may extend. Intercession may break out. There may be a prophetic word. There may be a sick person that needs to be called to be prayed for. And you're just moving with the Holy Spirit. Unstructured service is willing to just flow with the Holy Spirit. That's the menorah. We're saying, Holy Spirit, come. Let your fire burn. Let your light shine. Do what you want to do. We're going to move with you. But I'm telling you, the greatest enemy to this, what I'm talking about, is a religious spirit. And a religious spirit has to do with man being in total control. And after the menorah, now you have the incense. Praise and worship, prayer and intercession. After we welcome the Holy Spirit and we pray, we open things up, we're coming through the blood of the Lamb. We begin to move in praise and worship. And praise and worship biblically has always been radical. Dancing and singing and shouting and just freedom and praise. And that's biblical praise. And heartfelt worship. And that's one of the things I love about River of Life because when you do things for a long period of time, it becomes a culture. And here it's just natural that people really don't care too much about what's going on on the platform. People are focusing upward. You know, the thing about the tabernacle, you don't ever read about how handsome a priest was. You don't ever read about how this was so beautiful. And that. What was it about the tabernacle, the, the presence? And people just get caught up in praise and worship, prayer and intercession unto the Lord. And what happens? The pattern now, the same pattern. We've come through the blood. We've asked the Holy Spirit to come do what he wants to do. The incense of worship and prayer. So now we begin to go into the glory of the Lord. And you begin to feel that thick presence of God come in. There's a weightiness about his presence. The glory, the chavod, and it's a weighty presence. The shekinah, there's a cloud, there's a shining. We may not always see it, but it's there. And the presence of God comes in. And now we're in the glory. When the presence of God is a priority, that's when the presence will come. I'm not going to be like the priest at Nob that are just going through a religious ritual and the ark's not even in the house. Forget it. Forget it. There's too many places like that out there. How many would say, I've experienced the Lord and I don't want to be without his presence? Jesus walked in the presence and the power of God. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the Apostle Paul said, 
The kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Acts 10.38 says, You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went around doing good, healing all oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. The power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. Look at Luke 5.17. One day Jesus was teaching. There were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee, in Judea, and from Jerusalem. And look at this. And the power of the Lord was present to perform healing. Matthew 12, 28. But if I cast out, Jesus says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Are you seeing a pattern here? The presence and power of God. God desires with all, I believe with all of his heart, he desires to have a people that he can dwell among them. But he is a holy God and he is not going to place his glory and tabernacle his glory where there is unrepentant sin. He's not going to do it. You people can try it. You can go try it. But I promise you something will become sterile in time and it will be replaced with something demonic. I'm going to give you a few quick things that aren't in your notes. I read this the other day and it really stuck with me and I wanted this to get into this sermon. Derek Prince has a book called Protection from Deception. It's a really good book. I highly recommend it. Just put that out there people want to buy it but he said in here he said the spirit of god and the spirit of the world are at odds first corinthians 2 11 what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him even so no one knows the things of god except the spirit of god and paul goes on to say in verse 12 now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from god so there's the spirit of the world, and then there's the spirit of God. And he says that, that we might know the things that God has freely given us. It is not the spirit of the world, but rather the spirit of God who makes known to us the things of God. The spirit of the world and the spirit of God are opposites. Now listen to this quick story. Derek Prince says, I once had a problem when dealing with nice, charismatic people. He said, most of them loved me. They believed the Bible. They were not leading openly sinful lives. But when I began to minister to them in certain areas, I found a strong, invisible force coming against me. The pressure of this force was tremendous and almost physically painful. Although these people were believers, they were slow to grasp spiritual truths. And I thought, whatever am I dealing with? And God showed me in 1 Corinthians 2.11, I was dealing with the spirit of the world. Even in these good people, Christian people, the spirit of the world reigned. They had little time for God. They had little time for prayer. They spent more time watching television than reading the Bible. They were unwilling to make any significant sacrifice. They always put their own convenience before the things of God and my eyes were open to realize that you can be as religious as you please 
but the spirit of the world can still control people. And my wife and I began to pray for things, and things did improve somewhat. What I've noticed is that one of the things Satan attacks the most, and I showed you this through the scriptures you can see, is he wants the presence of God away from God's people. If he can get people into sin, he'll do it. But even if he can't get them into sin, he'll get them distracted with worldliness. And they'll get more caught up with their own convenience and their own desires. They get out of prayer. They get out of the word. What happens? They get dull. I mean dull. It's hard for them to get revelation. That they, they don't perceive things like they used to. Something else has settled in. And the devil wants people lukewarm. He wants them full of the spirit of the world. And he wants the presence of God separated from God's house and from your home. In that way, what the devil's goal is, is that everybody become lukewarm and ineffective. Even though you're going to heaven, you're not going to be taking others with you. Even though you're saved, you're not fruitful. You're not really doing anything. That's what the devil wants. It's okay, I expose the devil a little bit. So let me give you one more story, and, this will, and I'm going to end with this. This was a book called um, The Lord and the Fires, Increasing the Awe of God by James Maloney. And he said this. He said that God gave him a vision, and he saw the tabernacle of the Lord. So let me just read you this vision. I've shared this before, but I want to get this on this recording so that other people can hear it that haven't. Okay, so he said this pavilion that he was in in this vision represented the holy place. You remember the holy place? Table of showbread, lampstand, altar of incense. He said it wasn't overly ornate or fancy, but it, it wasn't dirty or cheap either, just basic and functional. He said, oddly enough, though, it wasn't in Old Testament times in this vision with a bunch of men like in robes and beards, etc. He said these were a few hundred Christians sitting there in the holy place. Many, if not most of them, were in need of some kind of healing. I could see blind eyes, deaf ears, tumors, crippling diseases, etc. And I knew that behind them was the outer court. Those were there in the holy place. And I could sense that they were eagerly anticipated ministry for their healing. I knew behind us was the outer court. Down a step, there was a, a steep steep steps that I thought were people out there as well outside in the light the sunshine it was a warm and nice place um, but in here where we were there were tall lampstands the menorah and it was like a warm light the table of showbread was present the altar of incense was there but yet even in the holy place he said people were still sick and suffering and I found that strange this was the tabernacle of God, and these were God's people, yet many were still suffering. And my heart longed for them. So picture this. He's having this vision, and he's thinking to himself, these people are in the holy place. Why aren't they still sick and oppressed and, and going through stuff? And then he said, all of a sudden appears this angel. This angel escorted me between the wall of the pavilion and the row of the seated people up to the front. And in the front, there were two flaps that made a veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Another angel was standing beside one of the flaps. 
And these two cherubim reached out and lifted the flaps up. And from the Holy of Holies, a warm flood of light came out into the holy place. A wave of indescribable glory emanated out of the Holy of Holies. And man, it darkened the light of these lampstands. The people, oohed and awed, <laughs> basking in the glow. It felt really good just to have this level of glory upon us. Some people were improved, but they weren't healed. Yet they seemed content to just sit there in this level. How many people get content with a certain level and never really go after God for all he has? They absorbed some of his power, but they made no motion toward the veil. The angels beckoned us to come into the Holy of Holies, inviting us, go deeper. They seemed saddened. They seemed saddened that all of us weren't rushing into the Holy of Holies. The angels were saddened. What is wrong with you people? You, you, there's some kind of a stupor. There's some kind of a dullness. There's something that is putting you spiritually asleep and got you in this, this place snap out of it but people just sat there enraptured by the warm rays that were spilling out not wanting to go in were they scared maybe did they feel unworthy perhaps but james maloney says here he says mostly i think that they were weighed down with dullness a lack of understanding that that lured them into complacency how many people don't mean to but they get religiously complacent, lethargic. I'm not minimizing their experience, but that level of encounter with God was not enough for them to get victory. And there was no excuse because the invitation was for everybody to go deeper and to come into the Holy of Holies, and they sat there. And he said to myself, or he said, I said to myself, what, are you kidding me? And of course, I'm going in. So I walked toward the flaps. Only three other people went with me. One man with a cane. <laughs> another one dragging his leg. He said a woman that was using a walker. And there was a man in a wheelchair. So three people. The moment we passed beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies, words fail me to describe the overwhelming awesome presence that bowled us over. In this place, the light was not from the lampstands. It was from the glory of God. It was the Shekinah. While I did not see the Father on the throne, I did see the four and 24 elders, he said, or the 24 elders who were worshiping him, and I did see bolts of fiery lightning, and I heard clashes of, of thunder, sounds of trumpets. I saw like royal tapest, uh, tapestries. And everywhere there was lights and shafts of beam and, beams and glory emanating from the Father of lights himself. Waves of glory rolled over us and we were immersed in the single greatest renewal experience I ever had. It was energizing. And almost like God's love and Zoe life were given visible form in these waves of light washing over us. And then the, it, and then the shock wave hit us. We were bowled over, slain in the spirit like dead men. The anointing and the reverence was almost too much to handle. We basked in this unrestrained glory for a few minutes. I staggered to my feet the angels reopened the flaps, letting some of this fire and heat escape out again to the people. When I exited the Holy of Holies, I saw the people 
just sitting there anticipating for me to minister to them somehow to express the glory that I had experienced it's as if they wanted a secondhand experience they didn't want a firsthand and he said it reminded me of Moses and Joshua whenever uh, at Sinai the people wanted to stand afar off and say Moses you go talk to him just let us know what he says and so the people in the holy holy place were blessed but it was only in measure the angel led me past them down the steps to the outer court where I found maybe 15 20 people waiting out by the curb they were unchurched unsaved they were crippled and sick and the Lord led me to minister to them as I did uh, they were delivered to demons they were healed physically it was awesome when I finished ministering the angel led me back inside and there were the waiting Christians and the flaps were open opened a second time once again inviting everyone to come in as the door was drawn back or the flaps I saw the cane <laughs> fly out followed by the walker flying out and lastly the wheelchair come flying out and I came out of the vision both exhilarated and praising God for his power see he's this is what he says now these kinds of miracles this level took place in the Holy of Holies I'm convinced this is where it's coming to people must come boldly before the throne of grace Jesus has rent the veil that separated us from God's throne room but most Christians seem reluctant to enter in I maintain that the majority of these kinds of miracles will happen in the Holy of Holies where the fullness of the glory comes we are entering a time very quickly I believe it will start with the church leadership first where God demands his people to press beyond the veil of flesh and come into the holy of holies where there's greater expressions of his power and greater miracles and then he says i'm gonna close with this there's always a remnant of those who press in harder than others let me read that again there's always a remnant who will press in harder than others who will utilize their rights in christ jesus to access the throne room and behold the all-consuming fire of god i want to be one of those people because it is here that the ultimate expression of God's power and might and grace will be found. That expression comes at a cost, going through the fires as it were. But it is vital and necessary if we want to see the Lord in ever-increasing measure. So I've taken you tonight on a journey in the ark of God. The presence of God. How Satan has fought to disconnect people, God's people, from God's presence. He wants to seduce people into sin if he can. If he can't, he'll lull them into a place of complacency and dullness. But regardless, he wants people to become religious without the presence and the power of God in their life. And one of the things that God has showed me, and I know I feel like I've expressed it tonight, is the tabernacle pattern for coming into God's presence because I grew up my whole life in church and I've seen just going through motions but not having the presence and the power of God and when I experienced God's presence back in around 1996 at Brownsville it had such an impact on me that we could actually experience God's presence like that you have to understand how life-changing this was for me and I saw how God's presence coming down affected people so deeply and I knew that I couldn't be without him it messed it ruined me in some ways because 
just going back to normal church would never be, I would never be okay with it. I would never be satisfied with it. I had to have his presence, even if that meant the numbers were smaller.